I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And we've got something really special today. Yeah, this is something we've never done before. We're actually doing a two-part episode because there's just way too much to cover in one episode. And we're calling it Beetle Brawls because <laughs> we're going to be talking about <laughs> battles that happened within the greatest rock band of all time, the Fab Four, the Beatles. You know them. You love them. Well, you don't like the Beatles, right? Um, They are, I would say, responsible for every creative impulse I've ever had. They they mean But aside from that. But aside from that, yeah. They're they're all right. They're okay. They've got some they got, they, right. they got some good tunes. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this, Jordan, but the facade of the happily mop top boys from Liverpool that we all know and love, it hid a lot of dissension that happened behind the scenes. And uh it, it it's just not all hard days night here. It's just, it's actually uh What's the opposite of a hard day's night? Uh, a terrible, terrible day and night? I don't, I don't know. A long, long night day? Something like that. Yeah. Anyway, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the rivalry between John Lennon and Paul McCartney, two halves of the greatest partnership songwriting-wise in, in music history. And then in our next episode, we're going to be changing course where Lennon and McCartney are going to be forming a Voltron, if you will. <laughs> And squaring off a coalition against the other great songwriter in the Beatles, George Harrison. Uh, so I'm really excited to get into this. I, you know, the Beatles story to me. You know, I've 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 watched all these documentaries. I've read all these books. I've reread books. I've rewatched documentaries. I know you're the same. I mean, it, look, 
I feel like we're inundated with Beatles stuff all the time. And yet I never get sick of hearing this story. I, I, I could hear details about their interactions forever. It's like a Greek myth or something. It's just larger than life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I have like Beatle anthology pilgrimages every, like probably once or twice a year. I watch all eight hours or whatever it is of that. And it, you're right. I just, I never get tired of it. And there's, there is something almost mythological about it. The, the way they ever capture so many, you know, including myself, just multiple generations. It's, it's just unbelievable. And I, they made me love music and that love made me want to be a writer. And, you know, I, I, I love a lot of bands, but I honestly don't know how my life would be without the Beatles. And I, I know I kind of sound like a crazy fan, but, you know, I genuinely worry someday I'm going to have to look into my children's eyes and lie when I tell them that the happiest day of my life was their birth. But actually, it was the day I got to interview Paul McCartney. I don't think that'll ever change. You have to rub it in that you've interviewed multiple Beatles. <laughs> and I, I've never interviewed any Beatles. Really? Uh, I've never interviewed a Beatle. Paul, Ringo, give me a call. I have questions to ask you. <laughs> I, I, but, you know, I, you will be using that expertise, I'm sure, in this episode. And you can give me a little bit of digs here and there because of my inadequacy in talking to members of the Beatles. I'll send them an email. They'll, they'll call you. Don't worry. Might take them a minute, but they'll get back <laughs> to you. All right. Without further ado, let's get into this mess. <laughs> Oh, man. John and Paul, you know, their relationship, like so many marriages, built on a sense of respect and ambition. But it's so much more than that, because their union, the thing that really made it special is that they shared a really, really tragic loss as young boys. They both lost their mother in, in their in their teenage years. And this is Britain in the 50s. Men and boys, they don't really talk about their feelings. And I mean, it's, they barely do now, but really not then. And so they had this thing in common that they didn't even necessarily have to talk about, but they both knew it was something that was that was unspoken between them. And that bonded them in a way that is so much more than a lot of songwriting partnerships of that era. You know, I think that that but bonded them on a deeper level. That is something that helped them really weather all the storms that were to come through Beatlemania and beyond, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the the important thing to remember with these two guys is that I think they did start off with a genuine sense of connection that they had, as you said, because of this shared tragedy where they both lost their mothers, and also because of their artistic ambitions that they had already as young people. Like, you know, I, I remember seeing a Paul McCartney interview where he said that you know, like when people would ask him what he was interested in as a boy, he would mention songwriting. And most people, their eyes would just glaze over and they'd want to talk about sports. <laughs> and John Lennon was the first person that he met that was also interested in songwriting. So along with having this, you know, th this tragic loss that they could bond over, um, they also had the, the, this creative ambition. It is interesting, you know, because as we talk about more of these rivalries, you know, you start to, to see echoes of other band stories and the story that maybe you're thinking about right now. And of course, the Beatles, it's like the ultimate story. But when I think about Lennon and McCartney, in a way, it kind of reminds me of like the Jeff Tweedy, Jeff, Jay Farrar dynamic that we talked about oh, I can see that. in our Uncle Tupelo episode. Just because, you know, Lennon was a few years older than McCartney, he was already acknowledged as being this great wit, very smart guy, had a lot of confidence. And McCartney has said that he idolized John Lennon. You know, I think he described him once as he was like the Elvis of our band. And he was the one that McCartney wanted uh, 
approval from and praise, right? I mean, and in a way, it was like that classic circumstance similar to the Uncle Tupelo story where you want this acceptance from somebody who's maybe slow to give it to you. Like John Lennon was not generous with praise necessarily. No, absolutely. I mean, and he he didn't respect a lot of people either. He kind of liked to be a gang leader. And uh, there's the famous story when John met Paul was that Paul went to see uh, his John's early band, the Quarry Men, play at a, at a church fair. And, uh, and Paul went backstage and met him and grabbed his guitar and said, you know, I actually play a little rock and roll myself and, and famously played Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock upside down. Paul's left-handed. He played a right-handed guitar. And he knew all the words, which blew John's mind. John didn't respect many people, but he learned to respect Paul in that moment just because of his sheer musical ability. And I think that, like you said, yeah, I mean, not only do they both have similar creative ambitions of being songwriters, but I think Paul showed that he had the goods early on, and that that earned him a whole lot of points from John. And it's interesting, and we'll we'll see this as we get into the episode here, that that dynamic between these two where— Paul is trying to get approval from John. John is the is the dominant one. And I think that carries over into the early days of the Beatles. Like if you listen to the first several Beatles records, John is more prominent than Paul in, in terms of singing lead on their biggest hits at that time. Um, you start to see a shift go on where as Paul assumes control of the band and he has more power in the band, that sparks this unforeseen insecurity in John that causes him to lash out uh, in, in very spectacular ways, as we'll see, you know, as we get into this. Yeah, the, the mid-60s, it's funny. There's this idea of Lennon-McCartney all the way through of them sitting in rooms and hotel rooms and stuff and bathrooms with their two guitars looking into each other's eyes, writing together. And that really sort of stops, I'd say, by 62, 63. They really are writing separately. And by the mid-60s, around Rubber Soul Revolver era, they're living very separate lives. Paul is kind of the man about town. He lives in London. He's sort of experimenting with the underground scene. He's got friends. His girlfriend, Jane Asher, uh, is is an actress, and she can kind of introduce him to all these cultural figures. And her brother, Peter Asher, who literally lives next door to him, is involved with the Indica Arts Gallery and all these kind of sort of experimental publications like the International Times. And Paul is really, really fascinated by all this. He's like a sponge soaking up all this new culture. And he goes to, to lectures from about Stockhausen and Luciano Berrio and John Cage, all this experimental music. So he's really absorbing all this stuff and engaged in culture John is living out in the suburbs. They call it the stockbroker belt because that's where just all the stockbrokers got their kind of McMansion-y type houses. Really boring place in this unfulfilling marriage with his wife who really doesn't stimulate him in any kind of way. And he cites the song Help later on as being like a genuine cry for help. He's just, he's eating too much. He's indulging too much across the board. He's so bored out there that he's just filling himself with food and a ton of drugs. He used to have a mortar and pestle by his by his bedside that he used to just crush up pills at random and then make an Uber pill, just like see what would happen. Yeah. He was really in, in rough shape, especially after the Beatles stopped touring in 66. I mean, he was, I think you said he was, he was eating LSD for breakfast at that point. Right. And, and yeah, and just like smoking weed all the time and watching television. Like if you've seen the movie Pineapple Express, like that was John <laughs> Lennon's life in the mid-60s. Yeah. You know, as you said, like first it was weed and then he started taking acid all the time. And then as we get into the late 60s, he starts taking heroin. And then it gets really serious. And he's that's when you start to see the more sort of gaunt, Jesus-looking John Lennon of the late 
60s. And it's interesting to me how these two guys were starting to, to diverge in the mid-60s because it really does, I think, upend a lot of the cliches about these guys. And I think it's maybe different now. I think Paul McCartney gets more respect now than he did yeah. a couple decades ago. He's but not like, the silly love songs guy anymore. Yeah, like, but I remember when I first started learning about classic rock history as a kid, like in the late 80s, early 90s, like Paul McCartney was still looked at as this lightweight guy in comparison to John Lennon, that John Lennon was the icon. Of course, he had died tragically. He was looked at as the more artistic one, the more— He was a saint. Yeah, he was a saint. He was also artistically adventurous, right? That's how we. That's how he was regarded. When the reality is, is that for a big part of the 60s, John Lennon was on the sidelines in terms of observing a lot of the changes that were going on, and Paul McCartney was, was more in the mix. Um, as you said— Going to art galleries, you know, being actively involved and you know, hanging out with like people like William Burroughs and yeah. you know, all the adventurous filmmakers of that time. Um, and you can see how that ultimately informs the later Beatles period. Because if the early Beatles are a band that seems to be led pretty clearly by John, by the time of Sgt. Pepper or so, you're seeing a decisive shift to where Paul is the person, uh, who's really the boss of the band. And John used to always complain. He'd say, yeah, I get a phone call from Paul. He'd say, okay, boys, I think we should do a new album. And he'd written, because he'd have written all the songs. He'd written, he'd had enough that he thought I could do a new album. And he's, John's saying, oh, geez, well, give me a minute. I got to actually write some stuff. <laughs> Paul was like basically like the busybody right? of this band. You know, like he, he was the, the kid in class who's always raising his hand, you know, trying to answer, uh, you know, every, every answer from the teacher <laughs> and always gets straight A's. And, with John and, and also with George, there was a lot of resentment toward him for that. Although you could also say that if you love those later Beatles albums, they probably wouldn't exist if it weren't for Paul's attitude. So it was this weird thing of like Paul motivating the band to continue to put out records, but at the same time, that motivation, that sort of hectoring motivation that he had uh, was also eating them away uh, from the inside. And if you listen to Sgt. Pepper, all of John's contributions are sort of like these meditations on the mundane. You've got Loosely in the Sky with Diamonds, which is about his son's painting that he brought home from school. Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite is from a poster that's in his living room. A Good Morning, Good Morning is about watching TV. And A Day in a Life is just born from a newspaper that he had propped up on his piano that day. So, I mean, it, it's funny when you actually think he's just sort of in his house thinking, oh, geez, i got to write some stuff now because Paul's ready to go <laughs> and I'm not. It's like he could have written a song about like, oh, the couch, the psychedelic couch, or, you know, the the walls around my room are, you know, speaking to me. Yeah, it, that is that is funny. Although, you know, like in the case of Day in the Life, that is an example of really John and Paul working together on a song in a way that they, as you said, they hadn't really done uh, all that much since like the early 60s. And really, I think Day in the Life is like the last example of them working together on a song because, of course, you know, John had the beginning part. You know, I read the news today, oh boy, that that whole section. And then there's that great section in the middle where Paul is, you know, woke up, got out of bed, drained a comb across my head, that whole thing. And there's other examples too from Sgt. Pepper where they weren't necessarily writing together, but it was this instance of them essentially polishing off each other's songs, which I think was something that continued to happen up at least through this album. Like, there's the song Getting Better, where, you know, the chorus is, you know, it's getting better all the time. And then John kicked in, you know, it couldn't get no worse. You know, perfect John Lennon, 
contrast to what Paul McCartney is doing. And of course, like by the time they get to the White Album, you know, like McCartney has talked about how he didn't hear John Lennon songs until they were in the studio. And there was no polishing of anyone's songs by that point. I mean, there was a lot of hostility uh, going on between these guys. And, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the death of Brian Epstein, their manager. Don't you think? I mean, because it seems like that is the beginning of the end in terms of... Oh, yeah. I mean, not only did Paul become the goody-goody of the group who had the songs and was ready to go and get into the studio, but now he was really trying to, and I don't think it was in a malicious way, but to try to lead the group through, because there was just this huge power vacuum. And sort of the first thing that you see after Brian died in August of 67 is the Magical Mystery Tour experience debacle, which is... uh, uh, there's a complicated reputation, wouldn't you say? It's very rare in the Beatle mytho- mythology that there's, like, anything that's not universally praised. But this is one of them. I mean, have you seen the whole movie? Because, like, I've seen, like, I've seen parts of it. There's, like, the great I Am the Walrus sequence that's pretty well known. And I think it's, like, the Hello Goodbye sequence where they're wearing the white tuxedos. Oh, your mother should know. Your mother should know. Yeah. Your mother should know. Um, Like, there's little bits of it that have been broken up into music videos, essentially. But basically, I mean, that movie is incoherent. Right. I mean, the the idea was that they were going to, it's sort of like Seinfeld 30 years early. They were going to make a movie about nothing. It was almost like a Merry Pranksters type thing. They would rent a bus and go out into the country and hope that something would happen. But unfortunately, nothing really interesting happened. And then they were left with 11 hours of footage of basically nothing. And they were amateur filmmakers who thought they could cut it together in a week, but they had all this footage of nothing. It took them like, four months it was way over budget they were missing like because they weren't filmmakers they didn't know how to make like linking shots and stuff like that it was it was a very costly disaster both financially and just time and effort wise uh but you got a lot of great songs out of it yeah and you can look at that movie and you know like you said it was like kind of the first thing that the beatles attempted that didn't really work which is an incredible thing to say given how much they had done up to that point i mean that's a pretty great streak of like commercial successes and like artistic triumphs you know (laughs) leading up to magical mystery tour but it is an interesting rorschach test because if you are inclined to you know be sympathetic to paul i think it's very easy to look at him and say like okay even if this project didn't work he tried yeah john's like gobbling drugs left and right george is like you know hanging out like with indian musicians and like meditating 24 7 you know ringo's doing whatever he's doing I mean, it was up to Paul to get on the phone and to get everyone into the studio and, and and to get them to make these records. You know, the question is, is like, should Paul have read the writing on the wall maybe and said, you know, Brian Epstein died. We're not touring anymore. Should we even be a band? You know, like these other guys don't seem into it. You know, I'm sort of dragging them across the finish line with whatever we're doing. You know, it, it just didn't seem like he was prepared to even entertain that possibility at this point. I think it was just a case of maybe dialing it back a bit and instead of trying an entirely new medium that you know nothing about, because uh, he just succeeded one too many times. I mean, Sgt. Pepper was sort of his baby too. I mean, the whole concept of, of being this fictitious band and making an album be a production and sending the album out on tour instead of going out on tour yourself. All these high concept ideas were generally his and they'd all been successful. So he probably thought, well, you know what? I'm sure I can make this work too. But in that time of, of crisis with the group, they probably should have just on an ordinary new album and just something a little easier to kind of get them through that whole crisis period. But but no, it was sort of the wrong project to tackle at the wrong time, I think. And I think, too, that you're really starting to see 
the aesthetic differences between Lennon and McCartney come to the forefront. I mean, where in the past, I think you could say like, okay, John is you know more of a sarcastic guy. He's more of like a rock and roll guy, whereas Paul was more of like a pop guy, more, you know, open to like romanticism and, and whimsy. You could look at those two elements and they complemented each other perfectly. And then we're getting into the White Album and it seems like they were just clashing. Like, where they didn't want to really even be in the same space. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were times when they had, like, three studios all going at once, with John doing something in one, Paul in another, and George in the other. And and John is, at this point, sort of openly sniping at, at Paul's music. He memorably called Obla oh, Di, Obla oh, Da, and Martha, my dear, Paul's granny music shit, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which, I, I love those songs. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I have to say, you know, at the risk of, uh, you know, generating the ire of our audience, I have to uh, defend uh, Obla Di Obla Da a little bit because I feel like it's become accepted to just like crap on that song. And I'll admit, it's not my favorite Beatles song. It, it definitely, uh, you know, it, it's like the Beatles playing ska and, and <laughs> singing a nonsensical chorus. You know, on paper, it doesn't really work. I can see why people would hate it. But I still think it's a pretty good tune. Oh, yeah. I I like it on the White Album, and I appreciate it in the context of that record with how many different songs there are. And also, I mean, Martha, my dear. Killer song. I mean, that is a... That's a great song. I mean, if that's granny shit, then, you know, call me... Call me (laughs) grandpa. Grandpa, yeah. That that song bangs. Well, I think with Obla Di Obla Da, Paul, like, had him going for something like two or three days straight, just, like trying to get that song oh so they were just i think it was just shoved down their throat too like if he was kind of indifferent towards it on day one by day three of you know 36 hours of of you know desmond in the marketplace i'm sure that he was just like all right no no more please 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 yeah okay yeah if i had to play obladi oblada <laughs> that's like guantanamo repeatedly stuff. for 36 hours yeah exactly okay granted if, if, if that's the case then i understand but otherwise if you're just putting it on the record and you're going to listen to it once on a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> perfectly pleasant song. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should... Start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. 
as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Sort of the real uh, clash between the two aesthetics is on the, the it was going to be the first Apple A side. They started a new label, Apple Records, in the summer of '68, and they were going to release their their the first Beatles single on their new label. It was going to be a big, you know, kind of coming out of their their latest business project. And John had written Revolution. It's the summer of '68. RFK assassination, Martin Luther King assassination, one of the most tumultuous summers in American history. Seemed like a really timely song. It's loud. It's got that incredible distorted guitar intro. It's just, you know, a call to action, sort of like vague, mindless action, but still action. It's a kind of an indecisive song, though, because he can't decide if he's if he's right. in for destruction or out. <laughs> That's true. You know, which I think, and I love that song, but like as a, if you're looking at it, as a polemic or as like a call to revolution or whatever it is. And I actually kind of like the ambivalence of it. I think that adds to it. But like, yeah, if you're looking for a clear cut answer, you're not going to get it from that song. No. So, so that's where John's coming from. And then Paul has Hey Jude, which is this just a custom design for, for radio superiority, this incredibly gentle melodic piano ballad with this lush orchestral fade. That's, and even with this like seemingly straight ahead, like middle of the road song, he pushes it into like groundbreaking territory by making it seven minutes and what? 26 seconds long. The longest song the Beatles have ever done at that point. And I think it was like the longest single by anybody. It was even longer than like, like a Rolling Stone, which was like, you know, historic in 1965. And like this, like, we're going to add a minute more of na 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 nas (laughs) to the end of this song to make it even longer than that. Because we can. Because we're the Beatles, damn it. Exactly. And it works. That's, that ending could go on forever and I would still love it. Oh my God, I know. So, so Paul ends up getting the A side, which pisses John off to no end. Probably because the song is written about John's son, Julian. John and his wife, Cynthia, have split up, and Paul goes out to visit John's uh, soon-to-be ex-wife, Cynthia, and, uh, and Julian, and to try to comfort him. On the way out there, he's kind of like thinking of words of comfort, and, uh, and he comes up with, hey, Jules, which he changes to, hey, Jude. Um, and I'm sure on some level, John must have known that, and that must have been weird. Like, I'm... Your personal life is in a shambles, and I'm going to write this song about it, and it's going to be our new single, and Elbow Yours. And also, by the way, it's going to be the longest charting number one single the Beatles ever had in the United States. So I don't know. In, in some ways, that must have been weird for him. It's interesting, though, because I, I read an interview once where John Lennon was talking about Hey Jude, and he actually thought that he put forward this theory 
that actually totally changed how I think about the song where he said that he's like, I think it's about me. I think Paul is saying, hey, John, and he's saying, go get that girl, you know, that you can leave the band and you can be with this girl. And of course, the girl that he's talking about is Yoko Ono. That's John Lennon's theory. Paul McCartney has never said that. I don't know if that's actually true or if there was maybe some sort of subconscious thing. But that is an interesting way to read that song if you hear it. And, of course, there's that beautiful part at the end where Paul and John are singing together. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, that, that, that's really beautiful. I also think, too, you know, we were talking about John and Paul polishing off each other's songs. And there's a, there's a great moment in Hey Jude where McCartney sings, The movement you need is on your shoulder. And when he first played that for for John Lennon, Lennon was like, oh, McCartney said, you know, I this, okay, I know this line is bad. I'm going to replace this. And Lennon's like, you're not. I really love that lyric. You got to leave that in the song. And McCartney has said that ever every time he plays it now, he thinks of John Lennon when he when he sings that part. So you know, it it's fascinating to me that even at this moment in time where their relationship was at an all time low, they could still have these like little moments of warmth you know, between each other where they could help each other out. And then, you know, five minutes later, they'd be at each other's throats again. Yeah, there's this moment that Paul sometimes talks about in interviews where he talks about a moment around this time when he and John were having a really bad fight. And then they both got quiet for a minute and the dust settled. And John sort of pushed down his granny glasses, the end of his nose and goes, it's only me, Paul. And then pushed him back up. And I mean, I get chills even thinking about that now. He says a little, little chink in his armor that you kind of let them know like it's only me you know we we've we've gone so far back we're i'm I'm your friend remember and i i still i always think of that whenever i we you know whenever we discuss the the stuff we're about to get to the real nasty business stuff i always feel like that there's a there's a romantic aspect to their relationship where not 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 physically not literally but like they're such great friends but there's also like a little bit of like a marriage aspect where there's a possessiveness that happens. And I think that's especially true for Paul. And that's because we're going to get into the Yoko part of this story right now. <laughs> and this is the way that he acts about Yoko. It just reminds me of like how people act when like the big X of their life moves on and marries somebody else. You know, it's like that thing of like, I. I hate that person. I hate that person for taking this person that I love away from me. And it seems like there's a, that's like a real aspect of this story moving forward. Oh, totally. I mean, obviously the thing that everybody knows about Yoko, John would bring her into every session for the White Album and with really sort of no explanation to the others. She just was sort of there. And it, it just, it, it was in, encroached on their psychic space, their creative space. It was obviously really difficult to him. But the thing that, not a lot of people know is that when uh, John left his wife to get together with Yoko, they didn't have a place to live. So they actually were Paul McCartney's house guests for a time, which is, you know, that's a play right there. I would love to see that. Um, so <laughs> so John and Yoko are staying together. And obviously, as you can probably imagine, uh, it was it was a tense uh, it was a tense time, them all living under one roof. And both sides have been blamed over the years. Some say that Yoko was just sort of cold and unappreciative and she and John would just sort of camp in front of the TV and stare into each other's eyes. But there's a story that Paul's sort of brief girlfriend at this period, a woman named Francie Schwartz, um, said that I guess Paul sent a really strongly worded racist note 
to John and Yoko that he he has claimed it was sent as a joke, but I mean we can't even say what it says. Right, I mean, if no. you read a Beatles book, you could, but you know, I mean, I guess we could say you and your blankety blank think you're hot shit. Yeah, is what the note said with a racial uh, slur. Blankety in there. blank. Yeah, like yeah, terrible. Um, and which. And Bob Spitz book, which is a great Beatles Incredible book. Incredible It's just called The Beatles. And like, if you're going to read a Beatles book, you want to read that one. Yep. He describes this scene and he says basically that John Lennon, you know, looks at Paul in horror, just like, like we're done. Like, who are like, you? Really? Like, you did this to my, to my, it was his girlfriend at the time. I mean, this woman I love. Like, how could you do that? Like, just like a... Like, we're not going to get over this, you know, like maybe down the road, but right now, like we're, we're through. It's funny too. Cause like the Francine Schwartz, who you mentioned, I believe that was also the woman that like Paul McCartney hooked up with after John and Yoko started dating and Yoko was in the studio all the time. And then Paul started bringing yeah. Schwartz into the studio all the time. So it's like, Oh, if you're going to bring a woman, like in, I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. I'll bring a woman in too, which again, it, it just seems like another um, example of, you know, making your ex jealous, yeah, making your ex jealous. And I, I think too, but like how, you know, John and Yoko got married. I think it was March of 1969. They got married. And then Paul and Linda Eastman, who uh, of course became Linda McCartney, they got married two days later. And it was like a very like quick wedding. And, you know, they had been together for a while. It seemed like they were heading toward, you know, getting married at some point, but it just blows my mind you know, that, well, John and Yoko got married. We have to get married now, too, immediately. Yeah, it was like a registry office wedding, too. It wasn't like a big thing that took much planning at all. So, yeah, that's it's definitely fascinating. I mean, whether or not Paul actually did this thing with the, with the postcard, his rejection of Yoko hurt John in a way that I don't think Paul had ever hurt him. You know, I mean, going back to the early Beatle days, Paul took a lot of crap from John. John would be getting drunk, starting fights, slagging people off. And Paul would always kind of be there and, and to smooth things over and say, you know, he's all right, really. It's okay. It's okay. So John regularly dished this stuff out, but he'd never really swung it at John that way. And so for the first time, Paul hurt John. And I, I don't think they ever really got over it. And he kind of, John retreated into his relationship with Yoko and also around this time, heroin. Yeah. And I think the heroin aspect of this story is weirdly under-discussed. Under yeah. I mean, I think if you read a lot of Beatles books, you know that Lennon was into this at that time. And, like, even if you listen to the the White Album, I mean, there's, like, drug references, like, throughout that that record. You know, Happiness is a Warm Gun. I mean, that's such a heroin song, you know? Like, he could have just, like, called it heroin. If, like, Lou Reed hadn't already written a song called Heroin, like, Lennon could have <laughs> called Happiness is a Warm Gun heroin. But, you know, along with all of the other drug abuse that that Lennon was going through at that time, I, I mean, I, it feels like the heroin aspect really deep six the band because, you know, you really, you can't communicate with a junkie, you know? I mean, and he was really checked out um, of the band at that point. Yeah, I mean, you look at footage from the Let, the Let It Be sessions and he's just glazed eyes staring, you know, staring at Yoko, barely playing. I mean, he can barely muster up the energy to, to, to do a song. So, yeah, that was a, a really rough, the early, late 68, early 69. And that was around when he he gotten busted for pot too. And it, it was a really bad time for him, a miscarriage with Yoko. Yeah, and you can just see that, like, that just made Paul try even harder. <laughs> you know, like, well, John is checked out, so that's going to make, you know, me be even more of a cheerleader in this band, which 
you know, it just creates this vicious cycle, essentially, in the Beatles as, as they're spinning out of control. Because, as you said, it probably would have been better for Paul to maybe lay off a little bit. But he felt like he had to do that to keep the band going. What's also interesting to me, too, like, you know, because we're talking about these, like, romantic entanglements that, that were going on in the band, it, like, how that ended up influencing the business aspect of the Beatles. Yeah. Because John Lennon ended up becoming enamored with this guy named Alan Klein, who was a big-time rock manager. And, man, we could spend a whole episode just on Alan Klein. Oh, my God. I mean, that story— just all the things that were going on with him. But like Paul wanted to bring in Lee Eastman, who's Linda's dad. He wanted him to manage the Beatles. And John's like, no way. Your father-in-law can't be a neutral third party to this at all. Like he's going to favor you in these deals. There's absolutely no way. Which I mean, in John's credit, it's probably true. Yeah, exactly. And, but also the animus that was being directed at Lee Eastman, because Lee Eastman wasn't just some guy off the street. I mean, he was a very well-known businessman. I'm sure he would have done a great job managing the Beatles. But again, going back to Bob Spitz's book, there's this this incredible anecdote about a meeting that took place with Eastman, Alan Klein, and John and Yoko. And I don't think Paul was there. Like, do you you remember this story? I mean, do do you remember that? Yeah, Paul, I think Paul knew better than the go. I mean, by the end of this meeting, they were like, holding each other back physically. Like, it, they were just screaming at each other, calling each other rats and and just all sorts of... <laughs> I mean, it was just totally devolved into, like, a playground scene. I mean, it was really... And the important thing to know about Alan Klein, I mean, he is one of the true, like, rock and roll swindlers. I guess Brian Epstein had met him, uh, and he refused to shake his hand because he's just like, yeah, I know about right. you. Like, I'm not... I don't want to get anywhere near you. So, but John thought his kind of brash, streetwise swagger he's this new york guy he was refreshing he wasn't just like some british business guy he was like real you know gritty which was john was all about at that time and lee eastman was i think this harvard educated um you know very waspy sort of figure and so they just hated each other just open animosity throughout this whole horrendous meeting yeah i I always think of like Alan Klein being like john belushi in (laughs) animal house and then like lee eastman was Lee Eastman was like the snobby fraternity. I forget what they were. Were they like the Omegas or something? Oh, yeah, like Kevin Bacon. Yeah, yeah, like the bad fraternity, you know? like Because, <laughs> yeah. Alan, yeah, Alan Klein, you know, he was like this overweight, unkempt. You know, he dropped a lot of four-letter words. He had a reputation for being a bit of a sleazeball, although he did, in the short run, get a lot of money for his clients. Um, but, yeah, he didn't have a great reputation. But like like you said, like Lennon liked his rough edges and 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 also was very mistrustful of being managed by by Paul's father-in-law. So I mean that really sets the table for these guys finally deciding to split. Although even that ends up being kind of fraught and not uh they end up arguing over over who's going to break up the Beatles. Oh, so so messy. I mean so it's the day Abbey Road comes out, it's September 69. They're having a business meeting. John had just come from playing the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival Festival, which was like his first big public performance he's ever done without the Beatles. First performance he's done in, in since the Beatles' last tour. And they're meeting, and Paul's being Paul, and he's saying, you know, I, I really think that we should go back to what we do best and be a band and start playing these little tour, like little pubs and clubs and stuff and get, get back to to our roots and, and actually stage a little small tour. And John just looks at him and what I think you're I think you're daft I think is what he said I wasn't going to tell you but 
I'm breaking the group up. I want a divorce. Like I divorced Cynthia. I want a divorce. I, we're done. And again, this is the day that Abbey Road comes right. out. And Abbey Road, of course, this classic record, beautiful record. It ends with the end, you know, end, in the end, the love you make is equal to the love, wait, the love you take is equal to the love you make. You know, this beautiful sort of zen-like uh, sentiment. And I think for a lot of people, like that record, it was sort of like, well, this is like the gentle wrap-up of the 60s. You know, we've gone through all this trouble, but, you know, this record kind of is bringing us into like a more peaceful landing. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, you know, they're, they're falling apart literally the day that this record comes out. It's just unbelievable. Although, um, it doesn't get announced that day. Like, John Lennon breaks up the Beatles, but Paul McCartney ends up getting credit for it. Because in the spring of 1970, he puts out his first solo record, McCartney, and he puts out this Q&A with the record, like the most sort of cold way to announce the end of the greatest band of all time. Like, like, like we have the Q&A here, right? Like, what does he say? The question, and he wrote this all himself. He's interviewing himself. Are you planning a new album or single with the Beatles? No, period. (laughs) Do you foresee a time when Lennon and McCartney becomes an active songwriting partnership again? No, period. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you, you're just issuing a press release to announce, you know, the death of Christ, basically. <laughs> you know, like, that's what we're doing here. It's like so unbelievable. And, and you know, what, what sparked this was like, a, it was like a debate over, or was a feud over release dates. And because they were going to put out Let It Be, the final Beatles record, um, right around that same time. And they wanted to bump the McCartney solo record to favor the to favor Let It Be, right? I mean, that was the controversy. And like, instead of just allowing his record to get bumped, McCartney's like, well, I'm going to take credit for breaking up the Beatles. You know, take that. And the reason that John didn't say anything initially is that Paul had been the one to say, no, 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 please don't say anything right now. And Alan Klein too, actually. We just signed a new deal with Capital, this great new royalty rate or something. And if they find out that the pans split up, it's going to tank the whole deal. So be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And I think Paul on some level thought, you know, okay, maybe this is just John being John and he's having one of his outbursts and he'll come back tomorrow and and he'll forget that he said this and the Beatles will go on being the Beatles. And then that was September 69 and and he, Paul releases this, you know, really cold, frigid Q&A in April of 70. So I think by that point it was clear, no, the Beatles are actually done. And it's for the Bowl of Cherries record. I, yeah. Do you call it the Bowl of Cherries record? I do, you know, The yeah. self-titled McCartney record, which I, I love that record. Oh, me too. Although at the time, it was uh, it was really panned. I mean, people didn't really take it seriously. It's a, it's a song, it, it's an album that I think is consciously playing down the mythology of the Beatles where McCartney's just recording by himself. There's a lot of song fragments. You know, there's a lot of songs that... Uh, sounds like that sound like they were written five minutes before he recorded them. And at the time, people looked at it as like, well, this is like a lazy record. It's a stoner's record. You know, he's not really trying to do something great. Um, although I think now people listen to it and they hear like, well, this is like an indie rock record. This sounds like pavement. You know, this sounds like guided by voices. Um, oh but yeah, John Lennon puts out a much different, well, he, it's different in a way, but I think it's kind of similar in a way. I mean, but it's Plastic Ono Band, which comes out in, in December of 70. I mean, which, I mean, are you a Plastic Ono Band fan? Oh, my God. I mean, I, I love them both for different reasons. I mean, it, it's it's not one that I listen to on a Sunday when I'm, like, you know, cleaning and doing dishes. Let me put it that way. It's what I listen to when I want to feel 
every bit of pain I've ever felt all at once. It, you know, it it opens with a funeral bell and it closes with a song called "My Mummy's Dead." And in between, <laughs> in between, there's not a lot of warmth, not a lot of sun there. It's it's probably the most raw, naked, unvarnished pain that's ever been put on record. I mean, I, it's it's very difficult to listen to. Yeah, it, it's a brutal record. And I think in terms of the mood, it's like the polar opposite of the McCartney record. The McCartney record is very much like a, it feels like very homey. It feels like an ode to like sort of the domesticated, you know, post Beatles life that McCartney was starting to settle into. But I do think the one way I would link them together is that I think Lennon was also interested in doing something that sort of strict strip back the grandiosity of the Beatles. Mm. You know, and of course, there's that famous song on the record, God, where he says, the dream is over. You know, I don't believe in Beatles, that whole thing. And whereas Paul approached that with a lighter touch, more of an irreverent touch, maybe, Lennon was deadly serious. And yeah, and and much more literal in a way. And it's interesting because, and we're going to get into this more in our next episode, but like, if you bring in the George Harrison record, that came out after the Beatles break up, uh, All Things Must Pass, he went in the opposite direction. That is like more grandiose than any Beatles record. You know, triple album. Symphonic. You know, this huge Phil Spector. You know, it's like Wagner goes rock, basically, that album. I also think, too, like with the Plastic Ono Band album, I always pair it in my mind with the Rolling Stone interview that John Lennon did when the record came out in December of 70. Because that interview is super brutal and super brutal to Paul McCartney specifically, right? To everybody. I mean, he takes shots at, at George Martin, their producer. I mean, he basically makes it sound like the Beatles were a living hell as soon as they got back from Hamburg in 62 and that he was being stifled this whole time. And and it's important to note that he had just gone through primal scream therapy, which was this controversial radical uh, therapy to sort of uncover years of, of, of personal trauma from his early days. So he was just a, a raw, exposed nerve. And he just was absolutely brutal to, to Paul. I mean, here's a sampling. Big bastards. That's what the Beatles were. You have to be a bastard to make it. That's a fact. And the Beatles are the biggest bastards on earth. Whew. I'm sick of reading things that, that say Paul is the musician and George is the philosopher. I wonder where I fit in. What was my contribution? They think I'm some kind of guy who got who got struck lucky, a pal of Paul's or something. They're so stupid, they don't even know. I mean, he just I mean, that's like and this this interview is so long that they ended up making a full book out of it. I mean, it is is massive. It is just a, an incredible collection of spite and bile that I feel like we should just like do another separate episode just reading it back and forth. <laughs> well, I mean, it it reads like a therapy session. It does, basically. Yeah. And like even even in those like little excerpts that you were reading, it's like no one thinks that. No one thought that John Lennon was a sideman to Paul McCartney. Like no one was like knocking Lennon down, saying that he wasn't important in the Beatles. I mean, that was his own insecurity coming out. I think probably because of you know, maybe because of like all the drug abuse that he was going through in the late sixties and maybe knowing that he wasn't as visible or as active in leading the band at that point as Paul was. And it, it's just an interesting flip from the early dynamic between those two because, again, like John was, seemed like he was so confident. It clearly the leader of the band, and you know, John was the one who formed the band. He's the one who like invited everyone to join. Um, and then you get to the end of the band where, you know, he's expressing doubts about you know how people perceive him in the group. You know, it's just an incredible 
turnaround. And it did not go unnoticed by Paul McCartney. (laughs) I think I'm pretty sure that Paul McCartney bought that issue of Rolling Stone the day it came out. And he read that super long interview cover to cover. And I'm just picturing like, you know, like Looney Tunes style steam (laughs) coming out of his ears. Well, reading that. Well, Linda wrote him a letter. Linda wrote him like a private letter kind of being like, John, what, what the hell? Like sort of on her and Paul's behalf. And then John wrote this letter that went to auction a few years ago, which was just irate. I, what did he say? Call her like, I don't know what goes on in your pretty perversion of a mind, but he just like starts laying in the Linda and by extension, Paul, obviously. I mean, it was brutal. There, whatever he said in Rolling Stone sort of pales in comparison to the stuff that is said privately to each other in, in early 71. So John, as you said, incredibly insecure at this stage. And he starts listening to Paul's solo albums kind of for messages that are directed at him. And when Paul releases Ram in 1971, he finds one. There's the opening track called Too Many People. Great song, by the way. Great song. Incredible song. Uh, Too Many People Preaching Practices, Paul says, which Paul kind of meant, uh, and he meant meant this, this was true, as like, you know, you were a teddy boy. What are you doing trying to save the world with all these peace crusades now? What are you, you, like, you preaching at people now, telling them what to do? Come on, like, get off it. Um, And then he also sang, uh, you took your lucky break and broke it in two, which is pretty self-explanatory. And I think he also, along with listening to these messages, he was also in the chorus of people taking shots at Paul for not trying hard enough. And and like I know in that Rolling Stone interview, he talked about like the first McCartney record not being very good. And he later justified it by saying that, well, I'm trying to motivate Paul uh, to write better yeah. records. <laughs> Something halfway decent, yeah. Although, by the way, again, I think Ram is another example of like a McCartney record, solo record that wasn't really thought of all that well at the time. And in retrospect, people look at that as being a total classic record, which deservedly so. Oh, Ram's my favorite Beatles solo record. Oh, it's up there for me. It would probably be like my number two or three. It's an incredible record. Love Ram. Uh, But then, you know, John, (laughs) you know, this idea that he's giving constructive criticism to Paul, though, by by slagging him in the press, it gets derailed a little bit when he puts out his second post-Beatles solo record, which is Imagine. comes out in 1971, and, you know, we think of the title track being this sort of utopian protest song, very, you know, let's bring everyone together. It's a song that celebrities like to sing on Zoom calls, as we all know. (laughs) But then there's also a song called How Do You Sleep on that record, which is an incredibly venomous shot at Paul McCartney. And really, like, there's no reason, there's no need to, like, do a coded reading of that song. I mean, it's clearly a shot at Paul McCartney. And the implication of the title is, like, basically, how do you sleep at night? you know, being such a shithead. You know, like, that's the that's the message of that song, basically. And the worst part is, he has George Harrison playing slide guitar on it, so just totally ganging up on Paul. Yeah, I mean, there's that line, like, you know, the only thing you've done was yesterday, and since you've gone, you're just another day, which is a reference to a one of Paul's solo songs. And uh, he calls his music music. Muzak, yeah. And, like, those freaks was right when they said you were dead, you know, that whole thing. It's just extremely mean. I mean, and I mean, I I think musically that song is actually kind of awesome, but like lyrically, it goes like way over the line. Oh yeah, Alan Klein was trying to like get him to like cut parts out because he's worried about getting sued for libel. Yeah, it's a it's obscene almost just in how just this naked expression of of animosity. Yeah, it's 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 also very tough to listen to. Paul responds as Paul often does with a sort of very quiet 
gentle, less direct song on uh, the first Wings album, Wildlife, later that year, a song called Dear Friend, which is, you know, about as as mournful as the title kind of says. It's this really kind of haunting piano ballad, an open letter to John that's just, you know, dear friend, what's the time? Is this really the borderline? Like, is this really the end for us? Is this where we part ways? Really devastating song. And thankfully it wasn't. I mean, it seems like, you know, as the 70s progressed and they were working through the business problems that they were going through, that they were able to at least talk to each other and and, and not have all this rancor going on. And it even gets to the point where in 1974, in the midst of John Lennon's lost weekend period in Los Angeles, they end up in the same recording studio together and they make one of the great, if also unlistenable, <laughs> bootlegs of all time. Uh, a toot and a snore in 74. Oh, my God. Where it's incredible. It's like, okay, it's, it's like you've got like Stevie Wonder is here, Jesse Ed Davis. You got Bobby Keys from the Rolling Stones band. Harry Nilsson. Harry Nilsson, of course. You know, <laughs> he was always in the picture, I think, when lots of drugs uh, were being taken <laughs> yeah. in Los Angeles in the mid-70s. But yeah, basically these guys are just getting loaded. And they're doing old, like, 50s covers. Like, they do, like, Lucille by Little Richard. They do Stand By Me by Benny King. Kind of like the rock and roll record that John Lennon ended up putting out. I think that was, was that in 74, 75? Like, it was like a 75, yeah. Way less professional. And, like, it's really... It, oh, they can't get through a song. No, it's all, yeah, like, they're they're super coked up, super drunk. And it's like the last. Well, you hear time. John on mic saying, "Like, you want some coke, Stevie? It's going around. <laughs> you want to snort? It's like it's amazing. <laughs> like not subtle at all. Saying it right into no. a microphone, you know. But you know, it's like mid seventies Los Angeles. It's like you don't need to hide it all that much, I guess. And you know, th- there's a part of me that feels kind of sad that this was like the last time that Lennon and McCartney sang together on a record. But also, there's another part of me that feels like, well, they're. It sounds like they're having a really good time. And I kind of like that it wasn't this sort of pressure-filled event where they would have felt, you know, the, the need to deliver up to the standard. To make something of, good. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's like they could just fuck they around They went back to Hamburg. Exactly. Exactly. And then it seems like after that, they were able to get together every now and then, like when Paul would be in New York and he would stop by the Dakota, right? I mean, they. I feel like they visited a couple of times. They visited a few times. Yeah, I mean, there's the really famous one, which I think was actually the last time they ever physically saw each other in person, which is in April of 76. And they're hanging out watching TV and SNL comes on, you know, the hip new comedy show. (laughs) And Lauren Michaels, the producer, comes on the TV and talks to them. He's doing the famous bit when he says, you know, we've been hearing that the Beatles have been getting all these offers from all around the world to reunite, all these huge astronomical figures. We're, we at NBC are prepared to offer you $3,000 to get back <laughs> together on our stage. And and John and Paul, I mean, they had no idea John and Paul were together, not to mention like a couple blocks uptown. But John and Paul are watching, and they almost get in a cab and do it. They get so close. Yeah, I, that would have been that would have been amazing if but, that happened. Oh, you know, I oh. and I know you've seen this. I feel like most people probably haven't seen this, but like when I think about that SNL incident, I also think about that VH1 movie that came out. I think oh, it was like two of us. Two of us. <laughs> where, I love where, that movie. Where it's like it's an account. It's like a fictionalized account of basically of Lennon and McCartney hanging out that day, and then you know they see the SNL thing at night, and like they're just hanging out all day in in Lennon's 
apartment. And Jared Harris plays John Lennon. Jared Harris from Mad Men. Uh, he played Lane Price on Mad Men. And he was also in Chernobyl, I think. And then Aiden Quinn plays Paul McCartney. And the, the scene I always remember from that movie is where they smoke weed and they go to the park and dance to a reggae band. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, and the cops come. Yeah. <laughs> And I it's mean, it's like, great. They don't look anything like either of them, but Jared Harris is incredible as John Lennon. He's got the voice, especially in like that era. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Well, that's not good, but it's worth watching. I'll say that. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't say it's good, but it's entertaining, especially if you're a Beatles fan. And I'm pretty sure that like you could find it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I think I've I think I've watched, I've, I've seen that movie like I think four or five times. It's not a good movie, but it's a movie I like a lot. So uh, definitely check out two of us on on YouTube. So, and of course, the tragedy of that movie or the tragic ending is that that supposedly was the last time that John and Paul saw each other because, of course, John Lennon was tragically murdered in December of 1980. And, um, you know, like I've read Beatles books that have talked about how there was a possibility, like a good possibility, that they were probably going to reunite, like at some point. Like there had been discussions going on for years. I, I think it was in Peter Doggett's book, "You Never Give Me Your Money." There's like a little thing in there about how there had been discussions about maybe setting something up in Central Park, like a big reunion concert. This was before the Simon and Garfunkel concert that occurred in the early '80s, but of course, it would never happen. Uh, you know, because of Lennon's murder. Yeah, there was talk about writing together too. It was also, yeah, it definitely seems like it would have gone, it would have gone that way had uh, had tragedy not not intervened. And of course, there's sort of the cruelest part of the whole story is is, is was Paul's reaction, his public reaction to it. <laughs> oh man, oh, yeah. He gets basically he goes into the studio to kind of like just distract himself, and he's with George Martin, who obviously goes way way back, and and they kind of cried together and, and did whatever they could do. And he, he gets buttonholed by all the press when he leaves the studio. And, and the only words you can really muster are, yeah, it's a drag, isn't it? And of course, you know, there's <laughs> just pain all in his face. But when you see it written down on the paper, he just got slagged. So it was just adding insult to, to grave, grave, grave injury. It was just this, this, this press slander. And again, you can go on YouTube, you can see that clip of him saying it. And he's chewing gum, too, at the same time, which makes it look even <laughs> yeah. more glib. More callous, and, yeah. And he's talked about it after that. And he just said, look, you know, I'm not one who's going to have this sort of theatrical public reaction to death. It's like, you know, he said that, like, he went home that night and he cried, like, all night long. Because, you know, that's something he felt like he wanted to do in private. And... You know, this is a guy who had been in the public eye for, uh, you know, nearly 20 years at that point. I'm sure that there was a certain armor that had built up, especially in front of reporters. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, you don't need to write a, an obituary in the immediate aftermath of your friend's death. But you maybe you don't want to say it's a drag. Yeah. You know, you may want to be a little heavier than that. But, you know. It, I think he, he made up for it, though, with the with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction oh, yeah. for John. In ninety, I think it was ninety one, which is one of the best Hall of Fame induction speeches ever. I mean, I I can't get I, I can't even think about it without getting choked up. I'm getting choked up right now. It, it, if you haven't seen it, go to YouTube and watch it. It is absolutely beautiful. It's written in the form of an open letter from Paul to John, and it's just little snapshots of memories. That is an instance where you could see the facade crack because I think part of the power of that speech is that it looks like Paul McCartney is on the verge of tears the entire time. He's giving that speech. Oh, yeah. Even though they were able to reconcile somewhat, 
in in their final years, you know, in, in Lenin's final years. Yeah, you know, it, it feels like that speech was like the first time that like McCartney allowed himself to be publicly emotional about Lenin. And in a way, it kind of like heal, I think it was healing for fans to see that. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. These guys yeah. actually do love each other, you know, or they did love each other. And you know, it wasn't just them arguing, you know, for like the last 20 or 30 years or however long it's been um, at that point. So yeah, that was an incredible speech. We're gonna take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. We were talking earlier about how this is like a Greek myth where the story's been told so many times, it has such great significance for people. And, you know, I think Lennon and McCartney themselves also signify something very distinct in the minds of fans. Um, I mean, wouldn't you say, I mean, it it seems like they're not just people, but they're sort of archetypes and people align themselves like with one or the other. Not only do people align themselves with one or the other, but you see this kind of dynamic play out in bands. When we did the Levon Robbie episode, I always felt that that Levon kind of had the John Lennon role of being this sort of brash, 
guy with attitude, maybe needed to be focused a little bit. And then you had Robbie, who was sort of more of a PR-minded guy who knew how to work the system and kind of focus in the energy of his other more creative, brash partner. And I, I think that the sort of dynamic, you can really kind of trace it back to Lennon and McCartney. There's, oh, yeah. I mean, I know it's it's very unfair to both men and their artistic legacy. If you actually look at it, and scrutinize it. it, it it doesn't work. Nobody is a certain way 100% of the time, obviously. But you've got Paul, the ambitious PR guy, workaholic, who's like sees himself as kind of like a craftsman and an all-around entertainer. And then you've got John, who, you know, is this uncompromising wild child driven by his gut. And he, what he lacks in technical precision, he makes up for with just attitude and swagger. And those partnerships tend to be really, really, really successful until they're very, very not. They almost always self-destruct at some point because just by their nature, it's it's just one side views the other as being completely unfocused and all over the place. And the other side views sort of the, the Paul type as just being rigid and confining and and, and hectoring and just like a boss figure. So it, it's interesting that they do need one another, I think, to reach their full potential. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, like you said, if you reduce them down to their archetypes, you are leaving a whole lot out. And I think we've touched on that already in this episode. But it doesn't change the fact that when people think of Paul McCartney, they're thinking of like pop, you know, like you said, craftsmanship. They're thinking of commerce, I think. And when you think about John Lennon, you're thinking about art. You're thinking about rock. You're thinking about risk. You know, all those sorts of things. Um, what I think is also interesting about this is that along with all those sort of big picture archetypal things, I think what people connect with in this story is that, you know, as legendary as these guys are, the arc of their relationship is actually pretty relatable. You know, I think we all have instances in our lives of people that we were very close to when we were young and it's a very intense connection, the kind of connection that you're not going to have later in life just because your life is more full. You know, you, like when you're, when you're young, you can actually spend eight, 10, 12 hours a day with your friend, you know, like that's because you have all the time in the world and then you get older and you experience other things in your life and you, you evolve and you change and you drift away from that person. And that's essentially what happened with, with John and Paul. And I think it's something that like, if you read this story, you can get resonance from it. It's like, well, yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't in the Beatles, but I had my, I, I had a Paul McCartney in my life or I had a John Lennon in my life. Um, and I understand, you know, why maybe it couldn't work out between these guys. If you're defending Paul McCartney in this battle, like what, what would be your case for Paul? Oh, I, I happily will. He's my, he's actually my favorite Beatle. I, I, you know, despite his reputation as sort of Mr. Silly Love Songs balladeer, I think he's responsible for the Beatles' most artistically daring music. I mean, while John was out at his, you know, McMansion watching daytime TV, Paul was going to John Cage concerts and stuff. And, you know, even a song like Tomorrow Never Knows with all the tape loops on it, which is probably this side of Revolution Number no. 9, the weirdest song the Beatles ever did, maybe— that's all Paul. It's John singing it. But all those tape loops and stuff was all his influence. And then all the orchestral stuff, like the, the big orchestral crescendo on um, Sgt. Pepper. I mean, Sgt. Pepper as a whole, the whole sort of concept and of making an album as a standalone piece of art that came about when the Beatles didn't want to tour anymore. And instead, this piece of art could go out and be their message to the world. That, I think, was all Paul. I mean, I John, I don't think, progressed as much musically beyond like maybe the influence of someone like Bob Dylan, who showed him that song lyrics could be meaningful and could could say what either is deep inside of you or comment on what you see in the world. But I think that, that Paul musically had a, a more 
creative arc. And uh, yeah, and then also, like as we said earlier too, I mean, Paul is really, I think, responsible for a lot of the great music. I went, oh, I've interviewed Ringo a number of times now, and every time I've talked to him, he said, you know, you really have Paul to thank for everything after, you know, the White Album and beyond, because we never would have gotten it together to go in the studio and make all that stuff. Like, that was all Paul who made the call. So, you know, if anything else, we thank him for that. I respect the fact that you waited this long to mention that you interviewed Ringo Starr several times. You know, I, I, I admire your restraint <laughs> for that, because uh, I have I've not interviewed Ringo at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I think people, especially of, like, Subsequent generations, you know, neither one of us are baby boomers. You know, we both were born well after the Beatles breakup. Um, but of course, the Beatles have continued to find new audiences with each new generation. And usually with, you know, the younger generations, they gravitate to the later Beatles albums, you know, Sgt. Pepper through certainly Abbey Road and, and maybe also Let It Be. And those are the Paul Beatles, you know, the, those are the albums where Paul was at the forefront. You know, the early Beatles, like the Hard Day's Night era, even up to the like, Rubber Soul and, and like and Revolver, which are all awesome, incredible records. I feel like those were like, you know, John was the guy in the driver's seat. Paul becoming more so around the time of Revolver, but certainly John felt like more the leader of the band early on. But certainly later on, if you love the later Beatles, that was Paul's band. Um, I think also. In terms of their solo careers, I don't think there's any question that Paul McCartney has had the most impressive solo career. Even if you just look at his work in the 70s, which was when Lennon was also, you know, putting out records. Um, records like McCartney, Ram, Band on the Run, a little bit later on McCartney 2, which came out around the time of Double Fantasy for Lennon. Those are great records that are really eccentric and experimental and, and turn people off in many cases, when they were released and then were rediscovered, you know, decades later and, and rightfully acknowledged for being uh, great records. Uh, and I think with Paul, you know, his experimental side and his subversive side, it gets lost when we reduce these guys down to archetypes. But I think in his solo career, it's much more evident. Whereas I think Lennon's solo records are, he put out some wonderful solo records, but they kind of stick in the same lane for the most part. I don't think that they go yeah. as wide. I will say, though, and switching over to the pro-John Lennon side, that uh, if we're going to talk about who matters more, who's more important as like a figure or as a symbol, I think John Lennon gets the edge there. I think McCartney is a wonderful musician. He's beloved. I don't think there's a more beloved musician on the planet, except maybe Bruce Springsteen at this point or Stevie Wonder. <laughs> you know, those guys are like among the most beloved or Joni Mitchell. But I mean, John Lennon is like an icon of like peace and it he kind of represents to people like the best aspects of human nature. You know, as much as easy as it is to roll your eyes at famous people when they sing Imagine on Zoom calls, there's a reason why people think of Imagine when times are tough. Because Lennon just has that kind of stature for people. Um, to some degree, it's overblown. But at the, on the other hand, um, it is a genuine feeling that people have toward him. Um, and I just feel like if you're talking about people like that, I just feel like John Lennon is like in the company of like a Bob Marley. You know, like Bob Marley has that same kind of status. Um, these sort of martyr type figures that people really value for something kind of greater than just music. You know, McCartney can't be expected to compete with that. And it's not his fault that he doesn't have that. But 
Uh, I think without question, Lenin does have that kind of significance. Yeah, I, I, Paul later said uh, after John's death, uh, when he was talking to a friend, he said, you know, John died a legend and I'm going to die an old man. <laughs> right. and Which is a brutal way to put it, but I mean, he kind of nailed it. I mean, and also, I I don't think there would have been a Beatles without John. No chance. I mean, right. it was his group. He started it. He and But he liked to be a gang leader, whereas Paul was kind of more out for self. I mean, that's not slagging him off. I think it's just true. And so I think without John, Paul would have almost just been like a, a front man of a faceless group or like an all-around entertainer. But I don't know. I mean, the whole heart and soul of a band thing is so trite and overused. But I, I think that's what John really is to me. I mean, even when he was taking a backseat to Paul creatively, I think that that, that energy there... Even when he's frustrating you, even when he's willfully pissing you off or alienating you, you felt like he was open enough to connect to him in a way that I don't think Paul really let you as much, unless there's those moments like at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, you felt like you, you knew John. I think that's what made him an icon. Yeah, I mean, I, he was definitely, he had his heart more on his sleeve than McCartney did, sometimes to a fault, but I think mostly to the benefit of his ultimate artistic legacy because like, I know when I first got into the Beatles, like John Lennon was my guy. Like he was the one I connected with. And I feel like when you're a kid, it's normal to gravitate to John Lennon. Like that maybe should be the one that you respond to because he is more of like a messianic type figure. And he's someone that I think appeals to like new generations of teenagers, uh, you know, for, for that reason. And then maybe later on you start to see the charms of Paul or George or, or, or Ringo. When we talk about these guys together, you know, why they should come together, I mean, I feel like this case is pretty self-evident. I mean, Lennon and McCartney. I mean, why should Lennon and McCartney be together? I mean, come on. It's the greatest partnership in rock They're history. They're Lennon and McCartney. They're Lennon and McCartney. When people talk about other great partnerships, they say, oh, you're the Lennon McCartney of dentists. You're the Lennon <laughs> McCartney of, of car dealerships. You know, this is the idealized partnership that we would all want to be. We all want to find our John Lennon or our, or our Paul McCartney, someone who's going to make us whole, who's going to allow us to achieve a sum greater than our parts and greater than anyone else's parts. There's still no other partnership really that comes close to what they achieved together. Uh, as great as they were apart, what they created, it's going to last as long as people care about rock music. Yeah, you know, I mean, they they are the the defining example of partnership bringing out the best in each other. Yeah, I, I think that it, to even argue beyond that is pointless because it's just, it, it is the gold standard of that. It's a great parable about friendship, you know, like what two friends can achieve together and how they can fall apart. And uh, I have to say, Jordan, that I hope you and I never break up. Oh, Steven, I will. I promise you, I will never write a How Do You Sleep about you. <laughs> or I'll, we'll do like one last podcast on like the roof of uh, Abbey Road. <laughs> yeah. That'll be our grand conclusion. But of course, we can't do a grand conclusion because we have to do the second part of Beetle Brawls. Next week. Dark Horse. And we're going to see Lennon and McCartney come back together and square off against their old mate, George Harrison. And I'm really excited to get into that because that's like a little, I mean, I love talking about Lennon and McCartney, but like this is a well-known story. I feel like this is like a less heralded rivalry. Oh, yeah. No, this one, there's a lot more to this one than I think that most people realize too. All right, man. Well, I'm excited to get into it. I hope you guys enjoyed the first part of our two-part arc on the Beatles. We'll be back with more Rivals next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. 
I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.